Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. In today's episode, Scott and I continue our series, A Time to Politic, as over the course of many weeks, we are examining the politics of the New Testament from Jesus of Nazareth to John of Patmos. Scott, welcome back. Cody, good to be back with you. Yes. You doing well? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's politic time, eh? Yeah. It's a time to politic. Time to politic. Hey, last time we were together, yeah, last time we were together, Scott, we looked at some key terms yeah. in relation to Jesus' proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, the empire of God, heaven's empire. We looked at the word gospel as we tried to situate some of these terms in their uh, first century context and sort of infuse them once more, maybe with the sort of political charge that they would have carried in that context. And so today we're going to look at a few stories from the life of Jesus that uh, we might call politically charged interactions, yeah, where individuals and figures come to Jesus and they question him about key concerns and issues of the day. So I'm going to read now uh, from Second uh, Testament, Mark chapter 12. Okay. I'm going to start reading at verse 13, really famous interaction. Today's episode, once more, sponsored by the Second Testament. <laughs> Here we go, Mark chapter 12, oh, there's verse no, 13. There's no funds coming in from the second testament, I'll tell you that. <laughs> if only, yeah. if only. Yeah. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. They commissioned to him, that is to Jesus, some of the observant, that is the Pharisees, and the Herodianoi, the Herodians, that they might catch him in a word. Coming, they say to him, that is to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are true, and no one is a worry to you. For you don't see uh, the face of human, but you teach God's path in truth. Is it observant to give a tax to Caesar or not? Do we give or not give? He that is Jesus, knowing their mask wearing, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarian that I may see. They brought, and he says to them, This image and inscription, whose is it? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were stunned at him. Okay. Kaiser there. Kaiser. Not, yeah, not of course. Try, trying to help the, the audience yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with the hearing of it all. Hey? hey, so Scott, so we're, we're jumping in here in a narrative location where Jesus in Mark's gospel is having sort of several interactions with different groups of people. So the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders have come to him earlier in chapter 11. They have a question about the authority, where he derives his authority. We have this story. Following this story, we're going to have an interaction with the Sadducees over a subject that keeps all of our listeners up at night, the Pentateuchal law of marriage and the age to come. I know that's what I'm thinking about when I, before I fall asleep at night. And then the scri a scribe is going to come to him in March chapter 12 and ask him about the great commandment. But here now, uh, we have the Pharisees and Herodians uh, coming to Jesus to ask a really particular question. And so maybe first let's open with who are these groups? Who are yeah. the Pharisees and who are the Herodians? Can you give us some background on these groups? Yeah, I mean, uh, you you got it right. They're, these groups are clearly uh, organized by the gospel writers so that in a sense, they're all, all the major figures are are worried about Jesus. They're wanting to do something about Jesus, and Jesus is going to respond to each one, and he gives these stories. I call them thumpers, and that is at the end of the passage, he thumps them on the 
forehead or chest and walks away and says, who's next? You know, sort of like, next, come on, who's else? <laughs> but uh, so the chief priests, the teachers of the law or the scribes mm. and the elders. All right. Now, let's this is in the verse just before our passage today. Yes. In Jerusalem. OK, let's put it this way. In Rome is Tiberius. Tiberius, however, is not in Rome. He's on the island of Capri doing nothing. Well, he's kind of running the country from from his uh, lounge seat because of basically a fear of assassination, at least in part. Sejanus is in Rome running the place, manipulating the scenes, and eventually he's going to be assassinated or he's going to be put to death. All right. In the land of Israel, what we call the land of Israel today, you have two principal Roman authorities in Caesarea Maritima, where Paul was on trial and where he was in, in prison for two years or so. Uh, you have Pilate, Pilatos. In Galilee, you have Herod Antipas. So those are the two primary authorities to whom everybody in the land of Israel has to answer. They don't have massive troops available to them. They could get them from Syria or from Egypt if they needed them. But by and large, the Romans allowed the individual countries to run their own show as long as they did what they were told to do and didn't start of course. acting up, which, of course, happens in sixty in the late 60s. Right. So in Jerusalem now, the leading authorities are the chief priests, and this is in the family of Ananus or Annas, depending on the Greek translation that is used uh, or the Greek word that is used. And uh, Ananus had a dynasty of five family members who were the chief priests. So there can be two chief priests in the Gospel of John. And along with that are priests, but there are elders. Elders are is a little bit more difficult to define, but probably the leading authority aristocrats of Jerusalem. And then you have scribes. Scribes are sort of like the uh, what we call in the United States, the administrative state. That is people mm -hmm. who are in D.C. who are not elected officials, but they are kind of running everything because they are the ones who make the laws or figure out all the information that turn into laws uh, in the Senate and the House of Representatives. So the scribes are sort of like, um, they can do a lot of things, but they're like combination of lawyer. Uh, these are people who can write, who can read, who can interpret, who can teach, depending on what they need to be doing. Um, and then along with them, we now have in in Mark 12, Pharisees and Herodians. Now, the Pharisees are a stereotype in the Christian church. They're a stereotype of hypocrisy and legalist, and uh, they're bugbears. You know, they're just a nuisance to everybody. They're always policing people. All right. In my dissertation, I think I called them theological cops. I, I don't think that was I don't think that was very accurate. I don't now think that, but at that time I think that's what of most course. people thought. The Pharisees yeah. are observant Jews, and they are observant of a tradition, 
and yes. they have great influence in Jerusalem and therefore with the people of the land because they are the ones who made the law practicable for ordinary Jews. So they're popular. The Pharisees are popular. These are not stiffs that everybody dislikes. You go, oh, here comes the Pharisee. They're going to ruin the party. Uh, they were good people for most, for, you know, for most of them. So the Pharisees, in a sense, are agents. I don't think it is inaccurate to say they are agents of Tiberius, but they are particularly mm -hmm. agents of the temple authorities because they mm -hmm. mediate, let's say, the temple authorities with the people and the people to the temple authorities. The uh, Martin Goodman's famous book on the ruling class of Jerusalem made it pretty clear that the priests, the elders, never did gain the confidence of the populace in, in the Jewish world. The Pharisees are the ones who did that for them. So they are agents, hmm. sort of like uh, social priests, social mediaries. Um, and they are sent, as you notice, the Apostle Paul was sent by the chief priests to, uh, let's say, snuff out the Christian movement. Now, Herodians is a little different question. Who are the Herodians? Well, you really only have a couple options. It could be uh, hangovers from Herod the Great, which would be, you know, quite a while. They could be Herodians from Archelaus, who was a total disaster. And therefore, they wouldn't be real popular in the inner circles of Jerusalem. But it's far more likely, I believe, that the Herodians are um, associates, companions, uh, administrative leaders of Herod Antipas. So they are Galilee-shaped, Galilee-based people who, who are mediating uh, for, for Herod Antipas. I just don't see much chance that the Herodians are hanging, hanging on to either Philip in Perea, Herod Philip, another son of Herod, or Herod uh, Archelaus or Herod the Great. So they, they tend to be seen in Galilee. So I, I, I go with those who see them as connected to Galilee. So that's, that's how I would give a long-winded answer to who these two groups are. That's great. So my question then becomes, what precedent do we have for these uh, these two groups being together? Would they uh, would they have been uh, in conversation and league with one another over many things? Would they see one another as alternative factions under a similar umbrella? How would they perceive one another? Because in Mark's gospel, at least in chapter three, these are the two groups that Mark says are conspiring together yeah. uh, to murder Jesus. Yeah, and so right we away. have them back again. Yeah. Yeah, very early on. And so would these groups have uh, been friends? Let's put it that way. Would they have uh, gotten along? Okay, an enemy of my enemy is a friend. Uh, this, is, yeah, of course. this is a pretty common social reality. I would say that the Pharisees at times needed Herodian support to deal with Jesus because Jesus is under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, who is the Galilean. Herod. So I would say that the Pharisees recognize that they need, let's say, authoritative support for 
confronting Jesus on things. Um, I, I would put it that way. Okay, that's that's my answer. That's yeah. It's and a so short answer, but they, they they no, that's great. So they're sent then. The Pharisees and the Herodians are sent. Uh, from the previous group in Mark chapter 11, and they asked Jesus a very specific question about paying taxes. And I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about yeah, this. Yeah, well, they give them... Because they I want to know if I should pay taxes, you know? <laughs> okay, they butter up Jesus first. You know, this is... This of course. This is Benevolente, they say in the Latin yes, communication. Yes. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. And and the inspired translation has you are a man that you are true <laughs> yes. you know i get because i'm going through the whole new testament with the everyday bible study i get irritated with the niv and i think why did you do that you know it's hmm. to me integrity is a different word than true of course uh, so at any rate they they turn it into a kind of an americanized sensation sense interpretation fair enough okay you're a man of integrity uh, and and i translate and no one is a worry to you you're not uh, you know mm-hmm. no no worries for you don't see into the face of a human now this is the language of you know you don't look a gift horse in the mouth and you don't show favor to someone but you teach god's path in truth so their question then after buttering up jesus we know you're a really smart guy we know you re- you care about truth. We know that uh, you make these claims. Is it observant? So I, I translate this as mm. observant. Is this appropriate for someone who considers themselves a follower of the law of Moses? To give a tax to Caesar or Caesar mm-hmm. or not? Do we give or not give? Okay. This is quite quite a question. And clearly, Mark wants us to think that they're just out to trap Jesus. And, yes. and they give him a riddle, in a sense, a riddle. Because um, now I know you're going you're gonna to go on. And Jesus um, says he realizes that I call it mask wearing. Uh, this is translated hypocrisy. I use the, yes. I use the um, image that many have used for the meaning of the word hypocrites. He said to them, mm-hmm. why do you test me? So he realizes their motive. Bring me a denarion that I can see it. All right, so now they got a coin. This is normally considered the Syrian shekel. They brought, and he says to them, this is, this is how the Greek reads, this image and description, inscription. Whose is it? Kaisar's, they say, of course. Jesus says, you know, pay back to Kaiser. What is Kaiser's? And to God, what is God's? Amazing, amazing answer to this question. So, so what's your question now? What, now, what do you ask me? Let's start with the tax. What, what, what was the tax? What are they asking about in specific? Yeah. And does it map in any way onto our modern political climate in terms of tax paying? Did you read up on this at all? I read up on it a little bit. Yeah. Because yeah. I just read a book by Anthony Ketty. Okay. He's really into taxes. I mean, really into taxes. (laughs) And it was a thick book, Oxford University Press book. And um, the taxes at the time of Jesus. And then I read another book on this by um, 
can't even Odo Udo is his last name, and it's a it's an academic monograph. Both of these are academic books. The evidence for the kinds of taxes that are available in the first century is slim. It's difficult to know, and the Greek words used are not always used the same way by different authors. Josephus doesn't seem always to know exactly which term should be used according to these scholars. So the the we we tend to look at taxes as a sort of head tax, so everybody has to pay a tax, or as let's say a house tax, every house has to pay, or everybody who owns land has to pay. That that tends to be also how it worked in in the ancient world. Um, the uh, it could be taken as a temple tax, and they paid a shekel for this sort of thing, and the word denarion is used. Um, and so I think it's really difficult to know exactly what this tax is for. Um, eventually, uh, with uh, Vespasian and then Domitian, Christians had to turn their temple tax, Jews had to, I shouldn't have said Christian, Jews had to turn the temple tax into a tax to Jupiter Capitolinus in Rome. Yep. So they took that tax. Of course. That was a head tax. Uh, it could, you know, I, I just, I am not certain what kind of tax this is. But I, but I do know that some people, and Jesus is riddled, pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's, uh, and what is God's is God's, can be read in a couple of ways. Okay, so Please. it could mean uh, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. That, that coin is his, and you give to God what is God's. That's you, you yourself. Or you could say, uh, you give to what is Caesar, what is Caesar's, and you and the observant would say, I don't give anything to Caesar. So I give everything to God. So it goes to the taxes. Or it, it just could be, um, you know, this has been pretty typical in the Christian church. I think it's mistaken. As you know, we have responsibility to the state and we have responsibility to the temple. Uh, that's sort of, uh, you know, uh, I'm a citizen and I'm a Christian, so I have responsibilities in two directions, two kingdoms. I doubt very much. But what what has intrigued me about this text is that in Luke, in the trial, someone accuses Jesus before before the authorities that he has told people not to pay taxes. So I think Jesus gave, if, if Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, um, there would be some observant Jews who would say, that's blasphemy. And, um, and if he says, you know, don't pay it, then he's in trouble with Rome. And that, I think this is why the story is, this is why this question is asked. It's a trap. If you give taxes, you're in trouble with the, the religious authorities. If you don't give taxes, you're in trouble with Tiberius and Sejanus and Pilate and Antipas. So Jesus gives a riddle back that doesn't quite answer the question, and I think intentionally. But in the trial scene, someone perceived Jesus to be saying not to pay taxes. And I tend to think that that might be what happened. Hmm. So Do you think I think it's resistance. This, this relates to the... This relates to the other pericope in Matthew, and I'll come back to that. Uh, the question about 
paying the temple tax yeah. in Matthew 17, yeah. which we'll come to in a minute. Uh, if Jesus is constantly talking about uh, destroying the temple, <laughs> destroy this temple, you know, and uh, seems to have in some way, maybe on, on a narrative level, a negative view towards the temple, would then the tax be conflated into that idea also? Like that in talking about the temple this way, Jesus is also talking about paying taxes to the temple in this way? Well, this is this would be a part of the theme of resistance. Who's he's resisting? Okay, if Jesus right. spent, basically says, "Don't pay taxes," because what every this is God's money, not not Caesar's money. Let's just say that that's the interpretation. And I I don't know how you can actually come to a conclusion on this. I I've read so many people on this for so many years that I just think, okay, uh, um, if he is resisting taxation he's getting the jerusalem authorities in trouble because mm -hmm. now they've got a big time subversive on their hands uh he, the, of course Pilate would be mad uh sejanus would be mad if some major movement occurred and they're not gonna they're refusing to pay taxes but the priests are not going to be, the chief priests are not going to be too happy if all of a sudden a bunch of people from Galilee say, we're not paying taxes. Uh, so it's an act of resistance. And at least he suggested that enough for someone to be able to use that against him in the trial scene. So I think this sure. is subversive of the temple Roman connection, the temple Rome connection. So, okay. So if he if if he flat out says uh, don't pay the tax, in some way, shape, or form, he sounds like an extremist, yeah. like a zealot. Does he does he sound like Judas the Galilean? Is that who he sounds like? Does he sound like someone who's calling for a type of political revolt and resistance? If he opposes, is that what he would have sounded like? If he overtly opposed taxes, yes, yes. but his he gives a riddle. Of course. So you can't. And so then, if he endorses, I suppose he would sound uh, like, uh, well, you said blasphemy, but like a sympathizer in some way, shape, or form. Yes. Yes. And so he is put then in a in a trap situation. Yes. Mark used actually a, a pretty unique word here for trap. Uh, he's trapped, a bit like a caged animal, we might say. They're yeah. trying to pin pin him in, so yeah. to speak. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've said about this story over the years, and one of the things I find really fascinating about Jesus, is when he's put in these type of test situations, I've often used the turn of phrase that Jesus raises the level of dialogue, if you will. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't answer in the categories that are offered right, to him. all the time. But instead, he finds an alternative way to reframe the statement or raise the level of dialogue in such a way that he's able to challenge those who are trying to test him without entering in at the lowest common denominator. Yeah, yeah, I, I, exactly what he does. But, I, but in changing the level or whatever you called it of conversation. Sure, raising the level of dialogue, yeah. yes. Once he does that, it's no longer a simple yes or no answer. And Jesus, of course, Jesus comes off with an answer that I think the, I mean, look, the gospels say they were amazed, stunned. And what he said, mm -hmm. like, what does that mean? I mean, it could be a bewildering stunt, or it could be this guy is really courageous. He's he's saying, mm -hmm. uh, you give to Caesar what Caesar's. If you're a Caesar type, if you're pro-pilot, you're pro-antibus, you go for it. But if you are pro-God, no. 
and that that's that could lead to stunning. So, you know, take your pick. Should we see this as a type of parable situation? I mentioned to you that I was just away teaching on parables this last week uh, to a bunch of adults. And what's interesting is, of course, in the parable about the parables, Jesus in Matthew 13, uh, Mark 4, uh, is going to cite the the call of Isaiah and this whole notion of that something about cryptic speech, you know, that yeah, they might yeah. have ears to hear and eyes to see. I mean, that these type of cryptic riddles invite us to ponder a little longer, to peer a little deeper, that our eyes could be opened, our ears could be unstopped in such a way that we could see what it is that he's doing. Do you think that we yeah. should see this as another sort well, of parabolic riddle? The, the, it is a riddle. And in that sense, <laughs> it's like that kind of language. And that's a very good connection to Mark 4, verse 11 to 12, 10 to 12. That, that is exactly what's going on here. But I, I think the believers, followers of Jesus, heard this statement and they went, yeah, that, that was, no, they, they typed in their Twitter feed, that, exclamation point, <laughs> or what do they say? This, is that what they sometimes type in? So this, or. You're, you're asking the wrong guy. Okay. Oh, that's right. I don't know. You're not a Twitterer. But do you do threads? So we have then none of the above. Okay. He checks none of the above. So we're we're asking questions then about um, passive acquiescence. We're asking questions about resistance. And so when we think then about a political context, reflect with us for a second then, Scott. Like, how, what are we to think about an interaction like this in the life of Jesus and the way that it reflects on followers of Jesus in subsequent generations? Well, I do think it would be helpful if we actually knew that he meant don't pay taxes or do pay taxes or, you know, you give to the temple what the temples do and give to Rome what Rome is due. I, I think it would be really helpful at a state level. But Jesus, in effect, says, my kingdom is not of this world. Hmm. And that would be the riddle-like parabolic moment where people walk away stunned that Jesus has just said something and he refused to play their game about whether we're pro-Roman or anti-Roman. We're not, he's not going to play that game. He's got a different game in mind altogether. So it was, really it was less affirming of paying taxes than he could have been, but it wasn't outright resistance, but some people used it against him in the trial, or at least when he's before the judges. Okay, let's let's jump over then. I'm going to read another text to you. Matthew 17, verse 24. Uh, they're coming into Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax approach Petros and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He says, yes. And Jesus anticipated him, uh, the one entering into the house saying, what does it look like to you, Simon? The kings of the land receive tax and custom from whom? From their own descendants or from outsiders? Saying from outsiders, Jesus said to him, then the descendants are liberated, but so we don't trip them. Journeying to the sea, toss a hook, take the first fish ascending and open its mouth, and you will find a stator. Taking that... Give it to them for me and for you. So again, another question 
uh, similar story, uh, but different in Matthew's gospel about paying now the two drachma tax uh, to the temple. Uh, talk to us about this story then, Scott. Well, uh, this is, a, I mean, this one has some interesting dimensions to it as well, because it affirms that Jesus believes in paying a temple tax. Or at least he says he pays it, not that he wants to pay it, and not that he believes of course. it. I, I think Jesus had an attitude toward the temple. I think he mm-hmm. thought it was corrupted, that it was too connected to Rome, and the people liked what Jesus had to offer on there. Okay. Hmm. So this is interesting. The kings of the land. Now, this would have to be, I think this has got to be Antipas. Uh, could be Pilate. Could be eventually Tiberius, Sejanus. They received tax and custom from whom? And the answer is from outsiders. That means they're collecting taxes right. from foreigners, non-Roman. Foreigners. Okay. Yes. Jesus says, then the descendants are liberated. Wow. This puts Jesus in the in you know in a sense exactly what happens in Mark chapter twelve the text we just looked at it puts him in a disinterested position in the question about taxes we're we're free we're free but you know what let's just keep our heads out of trouble and we'll pay the tax but it'll be a miracle it won't even yeah. be from yeah. our own labor. So there's a lot of playfulness in this, but there is at Mm. the same time a clear message that the people of Jesus have a different king because the citizens of the king are liberated from paying the foreign tax, the tribute that had to go toward Rome. And so he liberates his disciples and then says, for the sake of the gospel, I would say, now this is this is my interpretation. It's a good idea that we pay this tax to keep ourselves out of trouble, but we don't have to. That's, that's an attitude toward the temple. That is freedom. That is surrendering to Jesus and not surrendering to either the temple authorities or to Antipas or to Pilate or to Tiberius, big time. Hmm. I think these things reveal Jesus's posture toward the powerful state authorities, that he did not see them the way they saw themselves, He did not give them the authority that the people gave to them. And he did not embrace the system of the powers that were running Galilee. And the people, you know, this is one of the most popular words in the Gospels, Oklos, the crowd, Mm. they loved him. They loved him. There was something about Jesus that gave them hope. I mean, you start talking about the kingdom of God, uh, you're going to give people hope. Uh, and so he he gives them a different vision for how these things are going to be running. And there's an eschatology at work in these texts. So. That's really helpful. Yeah. So there is a, uh, a resistance, a recognition of the corruption, yeah. a distinction from that, but also saying, hey, listen, uh, we recognize where our true allegiance lies, but so as not to trip them up, so as not to incur more attention than we need at this point in time. 
hey, go fishing for a bit, grab the coin, pay for you and for me. Yeah. You know, can I'd like this miracle to pay my taxes. Do you think that we could get in on this? <laughs> this is the vision. Uh, Miraculous. Well, you, you pay more uh, taxes tax, up there than we have to pay, although I probably pay as much as you pay. Um, we pay the least here in Alberta, so that's good. Is it because no one wants to live there? Are you? It's because uh, the snow is gone. People it? love living here. The snow is gone. Isn't yeah, it? I'm still wearing a toque, but the snow's gone. You know, <laughs> it's the air conditioning on the cold head. You know. <laughs> hey, let me let me offer one more, Scott. Because yeah. our time's running to a close. Let me offer one more, just example of Jesus uh, offering maybe a bit of a a snarky comment about something yeah. Luke, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 13. Yeah, yeah. I'll read verse 31 to 35. Luke chapter 13, verse 31. On that hour, some observant Pharisees approached, saying to him, quote, exit and journey from this place because Herodes, that is Herod, wants to kill you. He said to them, journeying, tell that fox, look, I toss out demons and I accomplish cures today and tomorrow, and I will be finished on the third day. However, it's necessary for me today and tomorrow and on the coming day to journey on because it isn't appropriate for a prophet to be destroyed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one killing prophets and stoning ones commissioned to her. How many times I wanted to assemble your children the way a hen assembles her chicks under the wings, and you did not want this. Look, your house is released from you. I say this to you. You will never see me until the day comes when you say God's blessing on the one coming in the Lord's name. And so here now, this sort of might bust some of our caricatures of the Pharisees. We have observant ones, Pharisees, coming to Jesus uh, in a seemingly positive light here, warning Jesus to exit, uh, because Herod uh, wants to kill him. And Jesus's response is particularly interesting. Talk to us about that response, Scott. Well, yeah, I, I, I think the motive of why the Pharisees told Jesus might be as much to get him out of, out of Galilee as anything else. Maybe they've been sent by sure. Antipas. Um, but there's leak, isn't there? Isn't this amazing? This is a leak mm -hmm. in Antipas from Tiberius. But what really surprises you is that Jesus makes such a caustic remark and he labels antipas with an animal this is this is serious insult put down in the jewish world the ancient world and it's you know antipas is sly i mean this is you know he's foxy in the sense that he knows how to make things happen and get things done well he obviously did he lasted what, 17 years or more? I'm not, I can't yes. remember the exact years. Um, but he lasted a long time up there in Galilee. So he had to be working the, the, he had to work the bar really well. He knew how to get along with people. So Jesus is very caustic about Antipas um, and basically says, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go when I want to go. It's going to be soon, probably. And I'm going to die in Jerusalem because of my opposition to what's going on in the world. But I think that this shows a Jesus who is a dissident, who is critical mm -hmm. of the political powers and the way they're doing things. This is this can't be read in in any kind of uh, Romans 13 way. <laughs>
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Much of the literature that I read on this section quotes Dar, who says something like, upon hearing the Herod's threat, Jesus pegs the Tetrarch as a varmint in the Lord's field, a murderer of God's agents and a would-be disruptor of the divine economy. And so there is some serious dissent in this kind of yeah. Jesus pushing back in terms of the the agency of one kingdom in comparison with the divine purpose yeah. that seems to come through in Luke's gospel again and again, and Jesus, of course, being the agent fulfilling the divine purpose. Okay, so what, now what does Dar say? He says what? He says, upon hearing of the Herod's threat, Jesus pegs the Tetrarch of Arment yeah, in the Lord's field, yeah. Yep, a murderer of God's agents okay, now, and a would-be okay. disruptor of the divine economy. Okay, so the would-be murderer, so he's connecting Jesus. I mean, Jesus is connecting Antipas to his future death. Is that what he means by that? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I'd have to go back and double check. But I think in some sense that there's a connection of the powers that are working together, that are in league with one another. Yeah. Uh, that that perhaps shouldn't be in league with one another or working. Yeah, because because place. Herod, the the Pharisees, uh, they they are saying that Herod wants to kill you, and you know Herod mm -hmm. Herod Antipas is the one who kills John the Baptist. So yes, so this is uh, you know the 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 shadow the looming cloud of John the Baptist is over Jesus all the time, and he he has to escape the synagogues and the villages and go into the countryside so often. So I think he was in trouble, but the people loved him. And so uh, it puts a guy like Antipas in a lot of trouble because if, if a riot starts out, a revolution starts out, too much disruption starts out, then everybody's in trouble because that's the one thing Rome yeah. would not tolerate, social rebellion. Of course, so. yeah. So uh, as we wrap up our time, then let's uh, let's reflect together these three texts. You know, Mark chapter twelve, Matthew seventeen, Luke thirteen. Um, what what should we be thinking about this? If we think about it's a time to politic, we think about the politically charged nature of the language used by Jesus: heaven's empire, the kingdom of God, the gospel, a prophetic edge of conversion and allegiance. These this language that we talked about last time. Now we see Jesus being pressed with questions that relate to tax paying. Jesus is offering uh, comments about political figures where he is clearly resisting and dissenting from these political figures. So what should we be thinking about in terms of New Testament politics as we reflect on these texts in the light? Yeah, I think that we're, we're, uh, we're watching um, the beginning of early Jesus followers' reflection on how they relate to the state. Mm -hmm. But if there's anything that comes through in these texts today, clearly, it is that the powers in Jerusalem and Rome are not the ones to whom we will swear our allegiance. Allegiance will be to Jesus. And Jesus paved the path of dissidence and resistance. So there's, there's a note of resistance at work already in the time of Jesus. That's great. Well, thank you, Scott. Yeah, thank you, Cody. It's, uh, it's, it's been an excellent episode. Uh, this is the Kingdom Roots podcast uh, conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and taking root now as Scott McKnight uh, and I end our conversation about the life of Jesus. And next week, we pick up with texts from the Acts of the Apostles as we continue to reflect on the politics of the New Testament from Jesus of Nazareth to John of Patmos.